There you go. All right, all right. Uh, so here we are in Matthew chapter 18. Now, you'll notice that uh, the verses I listed in the bulletin actually back up into the passage that we went through last week. But I'm not going to take a long time to consider verses 10 through 14 because that was all part of what we did last week. But to go back properly, I think, contextualizes the passage that we're going to go through. Because if you'll notice, verse 15 starts with the word, moreover. And as I thought that through more and more, I really am convinced that all of this was part of the same conversation. And before I pray and before I read, just as a little bit of an introduction, what I'll say is, what happens with this passage of Scripture that's before us, especially verse 15 through verse 20, which is what we're going to concentrate our study on here today, uh, is it gets kind of filed in our minds under the heading church discipline. And I think that robs it of its practical application in everyday lives. When we label something church discipline, it creates in our heads a situation where we're thinking that like this is Jesus talking about how the church is supposed to take care of believers who are in sin and don't repent. I'll, I'll, I'll draw to your attention now and in more detail later that Jesus actually makes no mention of the church in this passage until you get to verse 17. The first part of this passage of Scripture is all about not despising one of his little ones. And as I thought through it, and I, I, I have every day for the last two weeks now, every single day, read through this passage of Scripture and, and, and meditated on it a lot of times. I've spent a lot of time over the last two weeks reading and meditating on this passage of Scripture. And I come away from that feeling like this was one of the most important things that Jesus ever said. And we file it in our minds under church discipline. And then because like the practice of what we think of as church discipline mercifully is not something you encounter too much, we don't think about these verses too much. And that's wrong. This is, this verses 15 and 16 especially, well verse 15 especially, is a place that we should be. It, it's the antidote for despising your brethren, despising one of his little ones. All of this is happening while Jesus has his disciples gathered together with a little child in the midst of them. And if you remember, the great heading over all of this is that they asked this question, who's the greatest, Right? Who's the, and, and so Jesus, all of this is Jesus answering that question. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And of course, that's where the child comes in. The least among you. The one who is the servant of all. The one who completely trusts and is faithful. The one who is humble. Humbles himself like the little child. That's the greatest. And then he goes on to add, you know, receive each other. Receive these little ones and you receive me. Don't make these little ones stumble. 
It'd be better if you had a millstone cast around your neck. And then he says, don't despise one of these little ones. And he's constantly through the whole passage talking about the little ones, the little ones, the little ones, the little ones with this child. So, so the whole thing is an answer to that question. The whole thing is this little child sitting there, right? So in a way, you know, I mean, on Christmas, we think about Jesus being a little child. Here's Jesus using a little child as an, a different little child as an illustration of something very, very important. He's illustrating and teaching about the relationship between all of us little ones in his body. Who's the greatest? The one who's most like that little one. And he's not saying it in a way to just rebuke them, though it is a bit of rebuke because you wonder why are they asking such a question. But he's answering the question because it's teaching us how we ought to be towards one another. His body is precious to him. Every single one is precious to him. That's what this parable about the 99 and the one is all about. He leaves the 99 to go after the one and then rejoices over that one more than the 99. Every single one that he has come to save is precious to him. And his own heart is broken when one of his little ones is despised. We will certainly experience the despising of the world. We should never experience the despising of fellow little ones. Brethren, let us pray, and then I'll begin to read in verse 10. Our Father, dear Lord God in heaven, I pray that, Lord, we would learn very much from your word today. Lord, you loved us with a love that we can't even summon the words or the feelings to properly describe. And you continue to love us like that. And you call us to be reflections of that love by loving one another, even to the point that the world would recognize that we follow you because they see that love that we have for one another. Fill us with your spirit, I pray. Teach us to love. Forgive us for our sins. Help us to forgive one another. Teach us to love that all of your purposes might be accomplished in your church, among your people, not just Fellowship Bible Church, but all of your Christians everywhere, all of your little ones everywhere, but certainly among us in this congregation. Let these things be true. Help me. Well, it's Christmas is like kind of like supposed to be Jesus' birthday, right? So it's okay. A, a little, a little divine reminder to silence your phone. There, praise the Lord. It's okay, dear Lord. We thank you for this time, and we thank you, Lord God, that. Uh, we can listen to your word now and pray that that edification in the Holy Spirit happens by your divine hand and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen. Verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I was thinking as we were singing some of those songs and we're singing about the angels saying, Gloria in excelsis Deo, the angels that appear in the sky, the heavenly host, the glory. You know, it's not just about angels rejoicing because Jesus was born in a manger. Then they have work to do. And part of their work, an angel is a messenger. That's what the word means, is, is relaying to God what is happening in the lives of his little ones on earth. The idea there is that when one of his little ones is despised, God hears about it from his angels. Heavy thought. They always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, He rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear... Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done, by, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. One of the qualities of that, not only does the word moreover in verse 15, I believe, attach this teaching to the thought concerning not despising one of these little ones. In other words, don't despise one of these little ones. Instead, if one of them sins against you, go and tell him his fault alone and try to win him back by doing that, right? But not only does that happen, but when you see this Uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, you're reminded of the passage that kind of set all of this off. Even back before they were talking like, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What had just happened? Even before they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was with his disciples and asked them, who do men say that I am? And Some said this, some said that, and then Peter spoke up and said, you're the Messiah, right? And Jesus said, you know, you're blessed because God in heaven revealed this to you. No man did. And then he said what? Uh, On this rock, I'm going to build my church. So, and, And that's why here you see him talking about the church and taking things to the church. That was where he first introduced talking about the church to his disciples, which wasn't really a big concept yet. 
And he told them, he told them this very same thing about, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And here he is saying it again. So when you put all of that together contextually, you see what's going on, right? They had just come to the full realization and had fully acknowledged by Jesus that he was the Messiah. Then they went up into the mountain and they saw him transformed and saw Moses and Elijah with him, which blew them away, right? The, the, the three that went with him. Then as they were coming back down from the mountain, a couple of other things transpired, but this is when this, this conversation about who the greatest is. You see what's going on? They finally realize this is the Messiah, and so their concept of the kingdom of heaven was the Messiah's go. This is it. I mean, Messiah is here. He's going to kick the Romans out, and uh, uh, he's going to reestablish the throne of David. And and listen, we're his chosen inner circle. We're obviously going to be very high-ranking officials in his kingdom. I wonder which one of us is going to be the greatest. Who's going to sit on the thrones right next to him, right? That came up a little later, too. You know, please let my two sons sit on the, the thrones, one on your left and one on your right, it says, I think, James and John's mother. So, so, you, so you see what's going on. They have, they, have, they have a view of the kingdom of God that in its full fruition, it was about to come forth, right? And so what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching about life as a subject in his kingdom in the context of what he knows his kingdom is. His kingdom was going to be characterized by, well, so far, 2,000 years of the church being the manifestation of his body here on the earth. And so while they're thinking of who's going to be great, what throne am I going to be sitting on, Jesus is thinking of my kingdom is going to be manifest here on earth and this good news is going to be preached all over the world and you have a place in that church, that called out group of people and the greatest among you is not one who sits on thrones, it's the one who's like this little kid. And therefore, you need to become humble like that little kid. You need to receive each other like little kids would. You need to not make those little kids stumble and you need to not despise any of them because they're mine. I, was, I told you I meditated on this a lot this week. You know when he taught us to pray? And he taught us to pray and what is it, what is that he taught us to pray at the end of his prayer? For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours, right? The kingdom is yours. Jesus taught us to pray. The kingdom is yours. What is the kingdom? Among all of the myriad things you can say about Christ's kingdom is not fundamental to his kingdom that he is the king and redeemed people are the subjects in the kingdom. What is his kingdom? His kingdom is people who have been saved through faith in his name. And we are taught when we pray that we are to acknowledge the kingdom is yours. In other words, every person in the kingdom is God's. Therefore, you receive one another. You don't make one another stumble and you do not despise one another because every person in his kingdom is one of his little ones, one of his little children in his kingdom, a sheep that he would leave 99 other sheep to go after. 
and then celebrate over. You get it? You see how it all ties together? You see how, I I love when God shows me that, and hopefully you have that experience when you read and you study too, and I love sharing about it, but, but the Gospels and the Bible in general is not a bunch of disjointed sayings. There's a flow to it. I mean, the Gospel of Matthew, if you really break it down, revolves around a series of discourses, long discourses, like the Sermon on the Mount, is like a, a, a section, a, a discourse, uh, the, par- the section with the parables. Uh, in chapter 24, you get the, the, the discourse about the, the eschatology, the, the end of the world, you know, and the coming kingdom. This, this is one of those long discourses where Jesus is doing teaching. And it's not that the teaching here is evangelistic per se, though we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as being fundamentally evangelistic. Here Jesus is going beyond just believe in me and you'll be saved and actually speaking to church life before, before the concept is even fully understood, right? And so this is how we are to live and function in his kingdom now. The full realization of his kingdom will occur when he returns. We know that, but here we are now. And so we're called to be like the little child that he put in the midst. Okay? No, you can't go home yet. So now we gotta, we got to break some of this down. So in other words, you know, when you get to verse 15, and he says, moreover, so he's adding to the discussion. He's adding to the discussion of do not despise one of these little ones. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, because that happens, right? That happens. I was thinking of a verse, uh, it just popped into my head in, uh, in Psalm 19. One of, you know Psalm 19, the heaven declares the glories of God and the, the firmament shows his handiwork and it talks about the, the set of tabernacle for the sun, nothing's hidden from its heat. And then that's like an illustration of the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's just like nothing can hide from the sun, no one can hide from God's law. There's a verse right in the middle of Psalm 19 that says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. And I've thought about that verse many times over the years. But this idea of cleanse me from secret faults, first of all, ought to be something that you should make your own prayer as you're before the Lord. But we go through life and we try our best and we're Christians and we're humble and we love the Lord and the Lord is good to us and he's placed us in a fellowship and Man, we might, we might say and do things that cause offense to other believers and we don't even realize it. Isn't that true? Don't you think that's true? That, that as someone like me, I got saved when I was 18 years old. That means I spent 18 years training as a sinner, right? And it's not that I stopped being a sinner when I turned 18 or stopped struggling with sin, but I had no conscience about it, no restraint, no presence of the Holy Spirit, no fear of God, no knowledge of God, nothing in my life, through those critical formative years of my life. And so I wasn't just a sinner, I was a really talented one. You understand? And so now I get saved, and like I have this desire in my heart to live for his pleasure. I have a desire in my heart to be a servant, but what do I find as I walk day by day? I really struggle. And, and even on my best days... 
Almost certainly there are ways with a thought or with a word or in an inclination of my heart or some dumb action that I don't even notice or pay attention to, I've offended God and maybe, and maybe crossed the line and offended a brother or a sister. And this happens. And, if it's, and the reason I think this teaching is so important is because if we don't deal with even what we would consider to be the minor offenses, the minor sins that we might commit against one another, even unknowingly, you know what, you know what starts to happen? We start to despise each other. And you may not even notice it. I'm not a scholar of Greek, but I, I could not resist using my old Strong's Concordance and my Vines Dictionary and looking up the word despise. And it's in Greek. I'm not pretending that I'm a scholar of Greek. I'm reading you the work of other scholars of Greek. Kataphronio is the Greek word that's translated despise. The last part of that word, phronio, means to think. Right? It's thinking about something. The prefix kata, kata, is a, is a, is a, a word that refers to position. It refers to down low or against something. So the idea of despise, it means to think against someone. It needs to think lowly of somebody. See, we, we associate the word despise with hate. And what do we do with that? We play, we play mental tricks with ourselves. I'm no psychologist, but we play mental tricks with ourselves all the time. We think it's okay to hold something in our hearts against someone as long as we can say, I don't hate them. Of course I don't hate them because we translate words like despise in English and we think hate. But that's not the idea of despise. Despise means you don't think lowly of someone. Kataphronio. Disesteem was how the Vines Dictionary translated it. Right? You esteem something, it means you hold it up. To disesteem means the opposite. Do you understand? The idea is don't think against one of his little ones. How about that? Christ Jesus in his teaching is going after your mind. a bad habit after we sing a song I take my sheet and I go over all my dreams in my darkest hour you are the Lord of all I am yeah really is he the Lord of your mind the Lord, the ruler of your thoughts? That's what he's after here. I mean, don't place a stumbling block before one of my little ones. That's pretty concrete, no pun intended. But uh, 
don't despise, don't think down, don't think against, don't harbor thoughts against one of my little ones. Is he the Lord of all you are? Well, he should be. You think I'd I'd remember that line without having to read it on the paper by now after... I mean, this song is 21 years old. You think I'd, and I've been singing it forever, so. Good landing. So, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's what you're told to do. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I want to read to you, um, I published this verse in the bulletins this morning. It's uh, from 2 Corinthians 13. Just listen. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace doesn't end there. Attaches something to it. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. See, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He dwells in temples that he has fashioned by his own power. He dwells in temples that have been sanctified by the presence of his spirit. And so he says, when you live and function the way that I have called you to live, good comfort, one mind, in peace, then I'm right there with you. I was going to look up 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. For time's sake, I won't. But in that passage, kind of the same thing. It says, be at peace with everybody, basically. There's a whole list of things in that verse. Things like pray without ceasing and all that stuff. All that is in there. But right in the middle of it, there's an admonishment to be at peace with your brethren. To be at peace with everyone. I thought about this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I thought to myself that Jesus, Jesus' directions assume that the offended person is in the right. Jesus, as with all of these teachings, there's a certain generality to it. And I think that prudence demands that we apply a little wisdom. And not that I consider myself particularly wise, but I just came up with six things that I scribbled down that I want to suggest to you when it comes to this practice of going to your brother or sister who has sinned against you. And I want you to think carefully about these things. And I say these things to you fully aware of the fact that I have blown right through every single one of these in my life at some multiple times. But I want, I want to do this right if you feel that one of your fellow little ones has sinned against you, you ready? Listen carefully to this. Number one, take a moment to think and pray. Make sure, to the best 
that you are able, that you're right. Right? Think. Number two, try to avoid discussing it with others. Even if you do then go alone to your brother and sister and resolve things, you may have caused irreparable harm already by talking about it among other people. I draw your attention to the word alone. You know, if, if you feel that someone has sinned against you and then you go and you discuss it with 10 other people and then you go to the person alone and say to yourself, see, I went to the person alone. No, you didn't. Because even though physically you and the other person may be the only people in the room, you've already spread the word about this thing. And don't you think the purpose of Jesus saying going to the brother or sister alone, don't you think the purpose of that is to try to resolve it alone and to try to settle it? Number three, you may think you need to bounce it off someone first. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that in spite of what I just said. But listen, let me just give you what I think is a little bit of wisdom. Go to someone completely removed from the situation. Don't name names and be as unspecific as possible. Doesn't that smart? You feel you've been offended. You feel you've been sinned against. You feel like you need to bounce that off of someone. Don't go to like mutual friends and bounce it off of them. I've, I've put this into practice in my life before, and I can tell you it's been of great benefit to me, where I have friends who are believers, and they're maybe not necessarily close to people that they're maybe outside my typical day-by-day circle of friends. And so if I've needed to get some advice on certain things, I go, and I get that advice from someone who I know will give me sound advice, and will understand what I'm talking about, but has no idea who I'm talking about. Because I don't want something that could be cancerous to spread. Do you follow that? Number four, wait until you're calm and not driven by emotion. You think that's good advice? Wait until you are able to be completely objective and not Furious, rest, patience, pray, wait. Number five, this goes along with the verse from Psalm 19 about cleanse me from secret faults. Be aware that the person you're going to may be completely blind to any offense. We do and we say things sometimes that we don't realize are these sins and great offenses Against God, God is big and God is powerful and we should pray like the psalmist does in Psalm 19. Cleanse me, cleanse me from secret faults. But God who is omniscient is able to do that. My brethren who maybe I've offended are not. My brethren who have offended me are not. And so as you go to someone make sure you keep in the back of your mind that they may be unaware of the fact that they've committed an offense. So go and be gentle and gracious, but be specific and be honest. 
when you go to someone, be specific about what it is you're talking about and be honest. And what is the flip side of that? If someone comes to you, receive it. Go to someone this way, and if someone comes to you this way, receive it. Christ cares that in his church, offenses are settled. You know, there's one place in Scripture where so important is this that Jesus says, if you're going to bring your gift to the altar, but you realize your brother has something against you, there's some kind of offense lingering down there. He says, leave your gift there at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and present your gift at the altar. Right? It's not, it's not a legalistic you know, command to do this or do that. It's intended to show Christ's heart towards his church. You're coming and you're worshiping and you're praising me while your life may have in it harbored bitterness, issues between you and others that aren't properly settled. And it's so important that you do these things right. What, if, 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 that's why I said, it's like, this gets filed in our minds under church discipline and gets put away. And nobody thinks about this. But this is Christ talking about stuff that's so important every day in our lives. Our lives are filled with interactions with fellow little ones. And in those interactions, sometimes offenses and sins occur. And sometimes we don't even realize it. But those things need to be settled. That there would be love and that there would be peace. That there would be completion and maturity in the body. And what happens is if we don't handle these things right, the offense that is created by handling it wrong can become bigger than the original offense. You understand that? Right? Like someone may do or say something, maybe not even realizing it, that offends a person. But then if that person who was offended doesn't handle that with maturity maybe goes and begins to spread the matter, to broadcast the matter, or, or just goes for a long time harboring bitterness and, and grudges and, 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 and even inadvertently takes it out, and that, just doesn't deal with it right. The, the, the growth of what can come out of that might be worse than the original offense was. I know this is maybe difficult teaching, but I believe it's true. Number six, if you resolve things, drop it. That's what he says here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Is there any disputing about what that means? Is there any unclarity about that command? Is there any doubt that that's a command? Is that just some, is that just one of these flowery teachings of Jesus that make us say, oh, Jesus, what a wonderful teacher? Jesus didn't waste words like that. These are commands. For all of his little ones. These are commands that are given to disciples who have in their mind, he's about to establish the kingdom and we're his closest ones. We're going to sit on thrones. We're going to be close to him in his kingdom. Which one of us is the greatest? That's what they have in their heads. And he says, among all of the other things that he says about become like the little child, don't despise one of them. And moreover, if one of them sins against you, Here's how you handle it. Go to him and tell him his fault. Tell him what is between the two of you alone. Alone, alone. 
if you're a Bible marker, like I am, there should be circles, underlines, stars, highlights, all sorts of things over the word alone. Because that's what he's after. He's after peace and unity in the body. You know, in Ephesians, Paul described Christians as people who endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavor means to work at it. That is to say, we labor and work at keeping peace in the church, in the body. That's one of the reasons why Jesus gives this teaching concerning his little ones. If they sin against you, go to them alone. Again, take a moment to think and pray. Make sure you're right to the best of your ability. Number two, try to avoid discussing it with others. Number three, you may think you need to bounce it off someone first. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs says, try to go to someone who's completely removed from the situation, right? Number four, wait until you're calm and not driven by emotion, but you're able to think objectively. Number five, be aware of the, that the person you're going to may be completely blind to any offense. Be gracious and gentle, but be specific and honest. And then number six, if you resolve things, drop it. See what Jesus said? If he hears you, you have gained your brother, period. If he hears you, by hears you, what he means is he realizes, man, you're right. I really struggle with that. I, maybe, maybe I didn't even realize I did it. Or, you know what, I was, whatever reason, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. You know, do you know that, do you know that a lot of good, real good can come out of all this? People can become better friends than they were before. People can become closer as brothers and sisters than they were before. People can gain respect for one another that they didn't have before. Am I right? Can you, can you see that? that? That the body can actually be strengthened through an offense or a sin that is properly handled. That can actually result in strength. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God can actually bring good out of that when it's properly handled. You know, you gain respect. You've done something to offend somebody else. That person comes to you alone and you are assured that they haven't like made a fool out of you behind your back. They've come to you and they've brought it to your attention and you're undone by the, the truth and the graciousness of how they're handling it, and you confess to them, yes, you've sinned, and you're forgiven, and you're reconciled. You've been gained. You've been won. You've gained your brother. The esteem between the two brothers or sisters in, in that exchange between them goes up, and that's good. That's strengthening. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If you don't handle it right, you can lose them. And you don't want to lose them. And you don't want to be lost. This is heavy. 
teaching. This is a heavy statement. Now, the rest of it's important too. The rest of it is what is best known. When people think Matthew 18 and they think church discipline, what they think of is some sad person being dragged up in front of a church to say, here's what I did wrong. You know? And, and I, I, I don't... I, 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 I guess there's a time and place for that, but that's not what I'm seeing when I read this at all. What I'm seeing is above all, the goal is when offenses occur, you go to verse 15 and you never make it to verse 16. That's a church that's humming along. That's a body of believers that's humming along. Because the offenses will happen. The sins will happen. You should strive to not sin. You should strive to not offend. But you will. And others will. To you. And so you go to verse 15. And God willing, Lord willing, we get it right and the church actually grows stronger. However, maybe they won't hear. Then you know what you're told to do? Verse 16. Take with you one or two more. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Right? So now you have recourse. Notice that the recourse is not to go and spread the matter abroad. The recourse is to go to... Listen, this is not optional. This is not subject to the demands of an ancient culture. This is timeless admonishment. Timeless. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. There was reason why Jesus quoted the law there. I actually do want to take the time to turn to Deuteronomy 19. So keep your finger. I won't stay there long, but everyone flip to Deuteronomy chapter 19 so you can see what it is that Jesus is quoting here because I think there's something that's actually very insightful about reading it out of Deuteronomy to see what, what was certainly when Jesus quoted this, Jesus knew what the heart of Deuteronomy 19 was. So let's ourselves, in case we don't have Deuteronomy 19 memorized, which I certainly don't, let's see what it is that uh, Jesus has in his mind. Deuteronomy 19, 15. Deuteronomy 19, 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Now, verse 16 goes on to say, if a false witness rises against... In other words, now here's the reason why for the law concerning multiple witnesses. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the, fa- if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Right? So the idea, the spirit behind the verse that Jesus quoted is, You take two or three witnesses. You take two or three people with you. Preferably people maybe who saw 
or are aware or who are understanding of what happened. There's certainly people that you have after, after, after you've gone to the person alone, after you've gone to the person alone. There are people that you have explained the situation to. And then you go and you take these people and you go and you try to talk to your brother or your sister again. And the purpose of that is many-fold. One of, it, one of them is to add some strength to the seriousness of your confrontation of the brother who has sinned against you. But the other is also to guard against false accusations because the way the law was written was if you brought a false accusation and it was examined, after examining it, it was discovered that the accusation was false, then what you thought, what you expected would have been a judgment against the person you're accusing actually passed to you. That had a way of minimizing false accusations, right? But again, again, what you see here is this keeping of the matter small, keeping the matter localized as much as possible, trying to prevent as much spread of an offense as possible. Don't worry. If the person who has sinned doesn't come around, there's recourse for that. We're getting to that. But the objective is to try to settle differences between Christians as locally as possible. Because matters that spread cause harm, they create divisions, they create strife, they create bitterness, they are toeholds and then footholds and then strongholds for Satan. None of us wants that. Certainly the Lord does not want that. I meant the Lord doesn't want the division, not, not the Lord didn't want the, the cell phone going off. I meant, there you go. Okay. Um, now, next, what if he refuses to hear them? Then tell it to the church. Now it becomes a matter of church. Here's the part of it that should be filed under church discipline. Not the whole passage. This part. Then tell it to the church. The church that he had just talked about when he told them, on this rock, I will build my church. Right? So this is what ties it back to that. The church. Tell it to the church. What does it mean to tell it to the church? Does it mean to... Stand the person up in a meeting like this and say to them, so-and-so came to you and brought up to you a serious matter that you would not turn away from and repent of. Then they brought with you witnesses and you wouldn't turn away. And so before this body of believers, I'm telling you that this sin is something that's created an offense between you and your brother or your sister, and you need to repent. Possibly. Possibly, that's what he has in mind. When he says, come before the church, does he mean maybe to take it to the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, seasoned people in the church? Possibly. Possibly. 
I think all of the above. When he says take it to the church, that is so broad and that is so general and that is so purposely ambiguous that I think that that's where skilled, discerning, spirit-led leadership in church comes into play. If a matter reaches this point in this church, certainly it should be brought to me. Not saying that because I think I'm anybody special. In fact, I am very convinced I am not. But that office is. This is. In Pastor Lou, Lou means nothing. Pastor means something. So if you are in this situation where you've gone to someone correctly alone and it's not been resolved and so you've taken witnesses with you and it's not been resolved, then your next step, as ordained by Jesus, I believe, would be to come to me. And then we will decide, in taking it to the church, what needs to happen. And there's a number of things that could happen. It could be that you get called in in front of the leaders of the church. It could be that the matter gets called up in front of the entire church, depending on what the needs dictate. The goal, what's the goal of it all? All of this stems from the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Become like the child. Part of being like the child is not to despise one of these little ones. That's the goal. The goal is to avoid there being a creating of looking down on or thinking lowly, thinking down, thinking against someone. Cataphronio. We're trying to stave that off. So you come and you bring it in. Now I would point out to you that the purpose for telling it to the church is what? To bring repentance. The the purpose for telling it to the church is to do the same thing that what the purpose was when you went to them alone. It's to try to win them back. You go to them alone and if they hear you, you've won them. You take two or three witnesses and if they hear you, if he hears them, You've won. won. You take it to the church. If the person hears the church, he's been won. And it's over. But if he doesn't hear the church, that's what's next. By the way, I wrote this down. Here's your little Christmas nugget, just to make it feel like you're getting a Christmas sermon, okay? This whole idea that I'm trying to put forth to you that Jesus is teaching to try to keep this as local as possible? Was not Joseph commended when he found out that the woman that he was betrothed to was pregnant? Is not Joseph commended in Scripture for desiring to put her away privately? Isn't that part of the story? And I would submit to you that that was a commendation Because it says Joseph, being a just man, had it in his mind to put Mary away privately. Why? I mean, why expose the whole thing to public shame? I mean, Joseph must have been devastated. A just and godly man hasn't touched her. Has 
a desire when his marriage comes to fulfill and experience the joy of that in every way and all that it brings. Then discovers that she's pregnant. Do we ever think about the devastation that must have brought to Joseph? And yet, what he has in mind is to very quietly, privately break the engagement. Break the betrothal which required a divorce. See, that's where betrothal and and marriage, betrothal and engagement are different. An engagement is a strictly, non-legally binding human agreement. And you can just, either party can just walk away. A betrothal, though not marriage, required an actual divorce to break. And he wanted to do that quietly. And he's commended for it. And I think that that gives you a little picture of what Jesus thinks about matters getting spread and spread and spread. Christ is no fan of cancer. And that's what matters being spread is like. It metastasizes into the heart and into the mind. And bitterness tumors show up. Despising tumors show up. Withholding of fellowship tumors show up. Gossip tumors show up. And before you know it, it's out of control and it's stage four. You understand? Christ is no fan of that. That's why this is so careful. That's why this is so important because his kingdom is made up of humans. Humans in their unglorified unfinished, not yet fully experiencing salvation state. Spirit-filled, sealed with the Spirit of God, but still vulnerable to where the flesh can take us. And so Christ makes a command that you settle things the right way. Now, when it's told to the church, if he refuses even to listen to the church, then it says what? Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That's an interesting statement. What does it mean to let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector? Well, I would point out that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was an issue of sin that was going on in the church. It's a little bit different because it's not like the the guy who was in sexual immorality because he was having an adulterous affair with his father's wife in the church. It's not like it was one of these issues of like personally despising someone. This was just blatant sin that was going on. So a little bit different. But still, what the Apostle Paul said was, listen, you guys are not only like not dealing with this, but you're continuing to glory. And he actually says, your glorying is not good. And I've already decided what to do. This man is to be put out for the destruction of his flesh, yet that his soul would be saved, right? There is that element in this of putting someone out for the purification of the body, This treating him like a heathen. What was a heathen? It's a word we don't really use anymore. A heathen was basically another word for a pagan. 
A heathen was a word for someone who was completely wrapped up in the world and had no connection to God whatsoever. Humanist. Narcissist. Um, there's other ists that are, that, are, that are escaping me. I had a few of them in my mind before, but they basically live their lives totally carnally from pleasure to pleasure without any regard for the knowledge of God. What it says is, he is to be to you, let him be to you like one. In other words, you can, because, because the person did not repent at being graciously and carefully told alone, told in the presence of witnesses, and even at the admonishment of the church, treat him like he's lost. How do you treat people that are lost? Well, you don't hate them, right? You, you, when, you, when someone's lost, you pray for them to get saved, right? When someone's lost, Jesus said of your enemies, what? Love them, right? So it's not a, it's not a license to hate somebody. But you are to consider them and treat them as if they're not even part of the body. If there are things that the body does that you're required to be a Christian to be part of, which really is everything, they don't touch that because they're acting like they're lost. And they are considered by the church to be lost. What are tax collectors? It's ironic, not ironic, it's coincidental that Matthew, the tax collector, the former tax collector, is the one who's writing this down. You, you, you let him be like a tax collector. The tax collectors were hated because they were viewed as traitors. That's correct. They took money from the Jewish nation and gave it to the Romans. That's who the, the, the publicans were, tax collectors. If a person doesn't repent of their sin when properly... Listen, this is why the propriety is so important. Because here's what happens. All the way back to step one, if the offended party doesn't go alone, but the offended party spreads the matter, then tries to go to the person, almost certainly that's going to make its way back to the other person, right? And now you've already got this before you even try to settle anything. And so the whole process is corrupted from the start. But when a person is properly approached alone and then with witnesses and then by the church and does not to repent and does not repent, they are to be regarded by the person, by the witnesses and by the church as not a Christian, treasonous. I lose my breath for a moment saying those things, but that's what those words mean. Christ was not random with his words. That's what the words mean. That's what a heathen was. That's what a heathen is. Someone who's completely outside the family of God. That's what a tax collector was, a traitor. So you don't hate them. You love them. But they're acting like they're not saved. And so you can't treat them like they are because they won't repent when they have been properly confronted in a sin. You may ask yourself, where is grace? Where is, this is not, this is not counter to God's grace. Listen, may I suggest to you, 
that the goal of all of this, like I said before at the outset, is that you never get out of verse 15. And verse 15 is the epitome of grace. You go to someone who has sinned against you, you tell them the fault alone. When they become aware of it, because they're your brother or your sister, oh, I'm so sorry, and they, hum, and they seek forgiveness, and then the matter is concluded. That's grace. That's what God does for every one of us. We realize we've sinned against him, and we humbly come to Jesus. And what do we receive? Salvation. That's God's grace. That he gives salvation to those who don't deserve it. Isn't that what grace is? Unmerited favor. Right? All right. I've said a lot of stuff today. It closes with two things. And the point of these last two things is to point out that Jesus really means what he says. And he says, when you obey these things, I'm right there with you. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I have given to the church authority to do this. And when the church exercises this, I'm in. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then he provides an axiom to back that up. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Now, the axiom gets lifted out of that passage to apply to all sorts of things. Two or three are gathered in my name. Prayer meetings, Bible studies, two or three. And you know what? I used to like scorn that because I used to think like, well, they're taking it out of the context. But, but actually, the statement is an axiom, which means that it is universally true by itself. You know what I mean? Um, uh, Anna has two apples. Chris has two apples. If they combine their apples, they have four apples because two plus two is four. The two plus two is four part is an axiom, right? If I then say uh, Sandra has two oranges and Juan has two oranges, therefore they together have four oranges, and you say to me, you're taking that out of context, Anna and Chris had apples, not oranges. Two plus two isn't four. You don't un- that means you don't understand what an axiom is. This is an axiom. It's a beautiful axiom. Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. It's applicable to church discipline. And it's applicable really to just about anything in life. When two or more gather in the name of Jesus, that is, for the purposes of God, in Jesus' name, Jesus is right there among you. That's awesome. But these two statements in verse 18 and 19, well, that they are to show is that when the church participates in discipline, right, Jesus approves. He's right there with you. Bound on earth, bound in heaven. So, what do you take out of this? I think the most important thing that every Christian should take out of this is this. Verse 15. Let's ask God to help us put into practice in our lives. If there's an offense, go to the person alone. And what you're going to find is this, I believe. 90, 95, 98 
of offenses among Christians will be settled. If we're really Christians and we really fear God and we really love the Lord, and especially now that you're aware of what Jesus taught, what you will find is that almost everything will be settled when we do it right. Let us not be a body of believers that allows bitterness to fester. Let us not be a body of believers that permits the damaging effects of offenses and sins to carry on. Let us not be a body of believers that makes those things worse than they really ever have to be by not handling them properly and correctly. Our Lord taught us how. Let's close with a song.